Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I am your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Naomi Cedar. Since 2001, Naomi has been learning, teaching, writing about, and using Python, and is the author of the Quick Python book from Manning Publications. Naomi currently serves as chair of the board of directors of the Python Software Foundation. By day, she leads a team of Python programmers for Dick Blick art materials, and in her spare time, she enjoys sketching, knitting, and deep philosophical conversations with her dog. Naomi, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on here. And just to kick this off, I'm curious, how did you originally get into software development? Um, well, I mean, there's the long story, and then there's the <laughs> even longer story. Um, so... Um, I started um, in programming um, many, many years ago. Um, in, um, I was actually a teacher. I'm uh, trained in uh, Latin and Greek. I have a PhD in classics. And I was, was teaching at a school in Athens, Greece in the mid-80s. It uh, was one of my, one of my first first jobs. I was only two at the time, uh, something like that. <laughs> and, uh, but I mean, it was, uh, I, I was teaching there in the 80s and um, we ended up getting um, an Apple 2C computer and um, I was um, fascinated, I guess we would say, with some of the things that you could do. Um, and um, ended up, you know, writing programs in AppleSoft Basic and learning about Apple, uh, you know, 6502 Assembler and things like that. Uh, and then in the 90s, when we were back in the in the U.S., um, picked up things like Pascal and C. And I was still at that time a Latin teacher at a private school, um, but. Um, I, I started tinkering around with uh, the computers, which were becoming more and more, um, more and more popular, and more and more. Um, I don't know what, what I should say. That was a time when there were a lot of people who were really intimidated to even touch the things. Mm -hmm. uh, so being willing to to play with them, and then I started writing um, code for. Um, various things around the school, tracking attendance and whatnot. Um, so that by, by about the mid nineties, they decided they could find another Latin teacher, but they couldn't find another person to manage technology. So I became um, technology director and I was, was there for a number of years. Uh, and um, sort of split my time between teaching high school students how to code um, we had a requirement that everybody to get through high school had to take uh, a, a semester of programming. So I, I taught a lot of kids to code. And um, then the rest of what I did was to um, write software for the school. Um, so there were various things that we did. We put our report cards online and things like that. So we were actually, I suppose, relatively early in the game to do that. And you know, honestly, the reason that we did that was I couldn't stand doing them any other way. <laughs> uh, and then once I started doing them, other people joined in and we actually got them online. So, um, so that was, you know, the, the start, I guess. 
then, um, you know, in 2001, I went to uh, Linux World in San Francisco, and there was this guy, um, Guido Van Rossum, who was uh, teaching a day-long tutorial on this weird, pretty much unknown language he had created, Python. And that's, that seemed interesting to me. So um, I, I, I went into this tutorial and um, I was, I think I was not a terribly sophisticated programmer, but I, I, knew, I knew the ins and outs of C a certain amount. And Python was just a different way of looking at things. And by the end of the day, I was convinced that this was what we had to do. Um, <laughs> I, I rewrote our uh, computer curriculum for our high school students for Python on the plane ride back to, uh, to Fort Wayne, uh, where I was at. Uh, so that, I, you know, I think from there, um, Python enabled me to write more things for the school, in fact. Uh, I wrote the complete student information system, track grades, schedules, everything, uh, using Zope, which was, it still underlies Plone, but you know, back in the day, Zope was, was the new and shiny thing in Python web platforms. Um, it, was, it was rather difficult to learn, but once you got over the learning wall, as we called it, it was, it was, it was pretty powerful. Um, so I did that and things like that. Uh, and in fact, uh, that software ran until like 2015. I had left the school years before. Uh, so that was kind of my start. Then um, in, in around 2011, I decided that it was really uh, time for a change. And I ended up moving to, to the business world. And I ended up with a, a subsidiary they were creating for WW Granger, which is a big industrial supplies company. Mm. Uh, and we had um, you know, a web platform written in Python. And so I was hired on as one of their first employees to see if we could make this work. And um, we started an and, you know, e-commerce site that's now, uh, it's, it's still around, it's, it's, it's fairly successful and all that. Mm. But that was kind of how I made the switch and I did um, helped them start a couple other uh, subsidiaries with that. And then hmm. a few years ago, moved to, uh, to Dick Blick Art Materials. And people are always surprised. What? You work for an art company? Well, yeah, I do. And I like it. So yeah. that's, that, that's the long, long story. Let's awesome. That way. No, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, it gives folks some perspective. And you just kind of like casually mentioned that Guido was like part of your uh, – uh, uh, teacher, uh, like how you got exposed to the language. That's, that's pretty awesome. I don't know how many, um, well, pe a lot of new people these days, they, they don't have that luxury. So, or, well, or would you I, consider it a luxury? I don't know. There were few of us in those days. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, that year, and I, I didn't know this at the time, I learned it later. That year they had, um, on the Python mailing list, they were wondering if they were going to have enough people at Linux World. And that was a conference of 12,000 people. They were wondering if they're going to have enough Python people at Linux World that it would make sense to go out and have a beer together <laughs> out of 11,000. So yeah, there were, there were maybe 20 or 30 of us in the, in the tutorial, something like that. Yeah. I don't know, maybe a few more, but it was, it was pretty, pretty small. Huh. And now would you say it's safe to, well, is it safe to say now that 
you couldn't really have Linux without Python? Or is that a, is that a fair statement or no? I think these days most, most distros have, have so many Python tools in them, it would be hard. You know, back in like 2001 or whatever, uh, which was when I really started using Linux full time, all of those utilities were either Bash or, or Perl. But these days, uh, there's still some Bash, there's still some Perl, but not very much. I mean, I think most systems would, would hurt more if you took away the Python interpreter than the Perl interpreter. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there's there's uh there's all this speculation on um like the trajectory of Python's popularity and kind of will it will it maintain that trajectory and um a lot of, a lot of things that I've heard it's surrounding the whole data science being mm-hmm. one of the huge drivers but I mean Absolutely. what you're talking about with um just the fact that it's ingrained in in the Linux operating system and that's pretty much powering any enterprise cloud platform like there's many reasons why this is a good thing to just have in your tool belt but i'm not biased or anything uh, (laughs) well nor nor am i but (laughs) i I think the thing that has happened and um i'm i'm pretty sure nobody planned this but what has happened is that basically uh, there have been various drivers kind of added so you know, I think in the case of Perl, I mean, just sort of from the sidelines, it seems to me Perl had, you know, one thing where it was used a lot, and that was system administration. Um, then they had kind of the whole struggle with Perl 6. And because of that being, because of the fact that they were relying on just sort of, that they were part of just one kind of ecosystem, when they had that struggle trying to update or whatever, I think basically they lost momentum and, um, you know, they, I don't, I doubt that they will ever, ever recover. You know, Perl hmm. as a language will ever recover. I don't know. I mean, you know, I hope Perl people don't get insulted or something. It's just, you know, a, a bystander's view, but the contrast I would make is with Python. Um, you know, we had Django come along in like, you know, in the in the late 2000s and that helped drive things and then we had increased pickup for system administration and that helped drive things uh and then you know we've had uh, a lot of growth in terms of data science and data engineering mm-hmm. even if you want to use something else to do data science you probably have to have a pipeline to clean transform and transport that data and that's going to be python strength anyway but then with things like, you know, being able to use TensorFlow and the various machine learning tools, there just keeps being added another driver and another driver. And mm-hmm. I think that has what's helped uh, Python kind of sustain as far as it has. Yeah. And then I know you mentioned something else in uh, your pre-interview about uh, an open source project that you're pretty excited about, the uh, B... Beware. Beware. Yeah. I mean, that's like, if we could crack the uh, mobile side of things, I mean, it would be, it, it would just, it'd just be yet another thing, I guess. Like, Absolutely. Well, I mean, we are, you know, because Python is, it used to be that a couple of the big things that, that Python couldn't do were embedded devices and mobile. 
And now with all of the work with MicroPython, uh, you know, that Damien George created and with CircuitPython that the Adafruit um, people have, have put out there, you know, now Python can do a lot of things with embedded devices. It can't do everything, but it's much more of a presence than it was. Um, so that leaves mobile as one thing that we never were able to do. And they've been doing a lot of work. Uh, the PSF supported uh, some of their first, uh, you know, gave them a, a grant that they're just finishing up on the deliverables deliverables for uh, to, you know, make it possible to, in effect, use Python to come up with a uh, an application that will run on Android, uh, as you know, and uh, and things like that. And there are there are a lot of Android devices in the world. Yeah. Um, so if we can do things like that, I think that gives us another boost. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I was curious, what would you say was your first success as a software developer? Or what, yeah, what would you consider that? Oh, first success. Um, I mean, I think the first success I had was when I was at the school and we did the, the whole automation, brought online all of the report cards. This was the first time I had um, a bunch of people really using my code and a bunch of people who in many cases didn't know didn't know anything at all. They, they, they were purely users. They had no idea how it worked. They didn't want to know how it worked. They just <laughs> wanted it to work. Uh, and so I, I think that was it. That was, um, hmm. that was an application that was written in Delphi um, with uh, Visual Basic for DOS because not everybody had a Windows machine, uh, things like that, um, and uh, DBase 3 Plus and all, all of those good things that us old timers remember. Um, but that was the first time and the, the, the thing for me was that it was the first time that I had managed to build something like that pretty much single-handedly. And we, you know, were in production, the school committed to using it. There were, you know, a few tense times around grade periods, the first couple of iterations, but school started using it and, you know, nobody could imagine not doing it that way anymore. That, that gives you the feeling that, yeah, you can actually do this stuff. Yeah, that's that's an awesome success story, and I'm sure it's been repeated um, many many times after that. Once you gain that confidence, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, your your wipe your website. Oh, actually, we we did talk about uh, uh, the your experience with Guido. Did was that the only time that you studied under him, or was there more? Um, I um. I've, I've, I've always sort of followed the things he writes and the things that, that um, you know, he says and he, um, he used to give a lot of, uh, of sort of talks about um, Python. Python used to have Guido doing the state of Python, Python every year and things uh -huh. like that. So I, uh, I always pay attention to, to those things because he has... And not only is he, you know, obviously a talented and skilled computer scientist, but he also has a, a design sense 
that um, uh, I, I think it's sort of a, an aesthetic and artistic sense of design almost. Um, it's not purely a, a rational thing. So he's very, very good to, to watch that way. Hmm. Um, over the years as I've worked on um, uh, books occasionally, uh, I will from time to time sit down and, and, and get his thoughts. Not, not very often, just a time or two, uh, because everybody wants a piece of that man. And I kind of want yeah. to respect that, but uh, from time to time. And then uh, these days, I mean, uh, we're both about the same age. We're both kind of old timers. So occasionally we'll like sit and chat at a PyCon or something, but that's about it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, just just uh, doing my diligence for the podcast, uh, I noticed that you uh, did some work with the Nikolai or Nikola static site generator. Uh, oh, yeah. And I, I had dabbled with that project a little bit and I was just... I was curious, what features do you really love about that project? Um, I, that, that's a good question. I mean, I was looking for, for static site generators and there are, there are a lot of them out there and everybody has their, their favorite and things like that. Um, I, I think the thing that I liked most about it was, um, uh, so one thing you could use either markdown or restructured text. That's nice. Um, most of them can, but I, I could see how to do this very easily. So I think the first thing is giving it an evening to play with. I could see most of what I wanted to do for my site. I don't want to do anything terribly uh, fancy or involved for my site. Front end is not what I do. Um, yeah. And um so there was that, and I guess what I liked was that um, the, the configuration options in, in sort of the configuration files were pretty detailed, but at least for kind of a Linux old timer like me, they made a lot of sense. So it's like, okay, I can configure this thing to do what I want. I can see what they intend in this configuration file. That, that was good enough for me. So... Yeah, I, I, it's something where I don't want to think a whole lot about it, and this one just works for me. Yeah, it and, was just you know. the right tool for the job, I guess. Yeah, well, and it's funny because um, one of the maintainers, Roberto Alcina, uh, who's from Argentina, he, he, he must have a Google alert because as soon as it came live, I got a tweet from him, ah, you're using Google. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, he's got he's got something embedded in there. Maybe it's he, he, there it's, is a little tag at the bottom, and and he must have had a search on that. So yeah, he's oh, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, cool. Yeah, that's cool. So I was curious um, with regard to your quick Python book. I was wondering why do you think people love reading your book? It's on the third, the third, third edition, edition now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well. Um, people tell me that they find it clear and easy to understand, which is certainly the goal. Um, yeah. And um, I think that is true, interestingly, even for people who 
uh, aren't native English speakers. Uh, I did just a couple weeks ago get that kind of message from somebody in Russia saying, the Russian translation is really good to read. I was like, okay, I, I have nothing <laughs> to do with the Russian part of that, but it's nice to know. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's part of it. I think the other thing is um, just sort of the keeping in mind the goal that this is for people who know something about programming but want to get to what they should do. I think, you know, to, to the point you made before we started the program, on a practical way. Yeah. So um, there are Python books that I, I truly admire that are full of theoretical knowledge and like you, it just like takes you forever to read them because you're absorbing all of the theoretical knowledge. And that's fine. I really admire, I really love those books. But I think for my part, if I'm really trying to pick something up or solve a problem, I sort of want to know what to do and, you know, I certainly want to be warned of any pitfalls, but I don't know that I always want to go into all of the details. So my approach for that, and when I teach classes, because I do do some corporate training from time to time, mm -hmm. it is to try and keep things pretty much on, a, on a, a pretty direct practical level. And I want to make sure people form the correct mental models that they understand how this thing works, but... I'm never going to quote the Gang of Four design book, for example. Never going to do that in a, in a teaching context. Yeah. Some people I know will. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's a difference in style. Yeah, excellent. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I was curious, why do you see total immersion in the Python community, everything from local to regional, as an important strategy to becoming a profitable Python programmer? Well, um, I guess my view has always been that um, just the pure technical side of things is something that um, a lot of people can pick up, a lot of people have picked up. And certainly you need to be solid with those skills. But if you want to really stand out, whether that's forming your own company or it's getting hired in a, in a good position, uh, it really pays to have sort of an identity and a brand and something that is, is out in the world that people can understand. And that comes down to soft skills, that comes down to uh, community involvement. Uh, if you can be part of these communities, you meet people who are doing the interesting things and maybe they will hire you or know somebody who can hire you. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think that's, that's something that is going to be, uh, particularly you know, with current situation in the world, I think we are gonna be seeing a downturn as we come out of this. It's gonna be really important that you have more than just, I can write good Python code. A lot of people who can write good Python code, maybe some of them don't even know Python now, but know another language and can pick it up. I mean, it's really, if that's your only advantage, it's going to be very tough to, to get ahead. So leveraging that power of community, go to your local meetups and people know you. Maybe if you can do things on a regional or national or whatever level, um, I, I think that really 
gives you a lot more options. I mean, when people say, oh, so you're part of this. Oh, well, that's, it, it, it sets you apart. It shows that you're, you're doing something, something more, something interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my thinking about that. Cool. Yeah. And actually just for when you were sharing that, I was kind of curious, like, we're so new in the scenario where, where it's like, stay away from me. Like you're keep your distance, right. you know, let's collaborate, but uh, not in person. Like what, what do you think, uh, where are some opportunities, I guess, to get to, to do that sort of collaboration when it's, it's pretty much all going to uh, be online now. It is. I mean, that's, I suppose that that that's both a a big negative, but in a way, it's a positive as well. So, um, a week from now, I'm going to be speaking to the Amsterdam Python Meetup. It will be a virtual meetup. It won't be <laughs> as much fun as if I were in Amsterdam with the people. Uh, but uh, this this I think would give us an opportunity to. Um, to circulate to all sorts of places maybe that we haven't uh, been as, as able to do before and things like that. So um, I, as far as I can tell, things like Meetup are still offering things. I think I got notices this week of three or four virtual meetups here in Chicago. So it is gonna be virtual, but I don't think that's a reason for people to, to back off. Um, as, as we know from meeting at, at conferences or Python, PyCon or whatever it is we meet at, it's really kind of cool then after a few months to go meet these people that you've known virtually for a while. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, that's going to be a good thing. And besides, if, with, with the current circumstances, we're all going to be sort of desperate for any kind of contact we can get. We better <laughs> jump on this. Uh, we only got each other. So yeah, it, it's, it's probably good to do that. Yeah, cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I was curious, uh, what is something uh, that someone new to Python could do that solves like 80% of the challenge of learning the language? Oh, That's a, that's a good question. I mean, somebody who's new to Python but knows another coding language will usually have a bunch of things that they know how to do. And for them, being able to, to translate those, and I suppose, you know, on the most naive level, it's kind of these one-to-one -one translations, you know, write Java in Python or something. But mm. The, the key there is to be able to translate those tasks and try to learn the Pythonic way, the idiomatic way of doing it. And I think somebody with some experience can, can through the course of a couple of projects, um, kind of get a, a, a feel for, for that a little bit. It's like, okay, yeah, so it's this thing in PHP, but they don't do that at all in Python. We do this other thing, or uh, stuff like that. So. Uh, for those people, I think it's the idea is to, to leverage the knowledge that they have, but then try to turn it into good Python uh, as they work through that. I mean, there are so many resources online 
Um, not, not to mention, you know, of course, I'm partial to people buying a book, but uh, there are so many resources online and, and various things that, that you can do that it's, it's almost hard to say, oh, go to this one place. There are many places where you can get good information, but it's mm -hmm. just sort of uh, occasionally people will, will ask me that question. They're like, well, okay, so I'm doing um, like front-end engineering, but I, I want to learn Python and do data science. I usually say, okay, that's, that's two big jumps at once. Um, you know, you might want to think about hitting this by stages. So, um, yeah. If you're learning to program, then it's not really the learning Python part that's the challenge. It's the learning to program part that's the challenge. Python will make it easier than most. And um, that just takes a lot of practice to write, write lots of, of, of code that doesn't do quite what you think it does and then try to figure out why and, and, and sort of move from there. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's awesome. So. Um, I, I like how you dice that up. I think I will asking that question in the future. I will try and be a little, uh, more, uh, direct with, yeah. Cause it, there is like kind of two, two ways you could split it up. That makes a lot of sense. So thank you for, sure. thank you for articulating that. So, uh, uh, what, well, on that same note, I guess I'm kind of curious, let's say for the newcomer, uh, what is overly difficult with learning um, with learning to program with Python that maybe they should try and avoid when starting out? Um, I think what I would say is if they're if they're new to programming and they're learning to code with Python. Um, that probably the best thing they can do is to focus on some basics and some things that, that solve problems or are interesting for them because motivation is so important for retaining material. Uh, if you don't actually have a use for something, you can learn it perfectly one day and three days later, it's, it's, it's going to be sliding away. So it's that. And I guess the other thing I would say is not to be too concerned with what you think everybody thinks you should be doing. Uh, if in fact, you've got a fairly simple bunch of things that you're doing and you actually have that mastered, things will come up that will force you to branch out. But don't worry about, oh, I've got to cover everything. Uh, that, um, as they say, it, it, it won't really work that well. And uh, it'll just put, it puts a lot of stress on people, which again, doesn't help you learn, so. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, I can't help but notice, but you're wearing a MongoDB shirt, so I must ask, <laughs> when, when does MongoDB, you know, when do, when do you get to start playing with the databases? It, or, or should that not be on your radar? Uh, well, you know. um, so um, I think that it really depends upon what what it is that 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 someone wants to do. Like, if somebody has, say, a um, a 
a math background and they're interested in doing some, some statistical things and some data science, they probably don't care a lot about databases other than as a way to get data and it could be any source, it could be a CSV file, they don't care. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're more likely to want to play around with the other things. Uh, but maybe it's somebody who's writing a, uh, writing some sort of web application where they want to track users and what users are doing and things like that. They're going to very quickly get into databases because there's no other way to do it. Maybe they'll start with SQLite, but then, oh, this is not really... I've got too much stuff here. I'm going to need to go to Postgres or something and they will find that. But I mean, I think it all really depends upon um, what it is that that person really wants to do because databases in and of themselves are, well, they're not easy, but they're also not impossibly hard if you have a use for it. Yeah. So I, again, I would try to drive all of this stuff uh, off, of, off of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, I'm, I, I guess I'm kind of happy that the conversation keeps gravitating back towards that because especially like I just reflect on myself when I first kind of got into the scene, it's like, it's so easy to just start, you're on a blog reading something and you're like, oh, this person knows exactly the, me the method. And then you go to this other place and they're like, no, 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 you should do this. Right. And it's kind of like, think for yourself, what, are, what is your use case? Try and solve your own problems. Certainly, I mean, reading those sources and, and trying to understand what they're doing and seeing if it would work is, is certainly useful. I mean, you know, you, yeah. definitely you want to keep on improving. But yeah, I would say don't let those drive uh, the learning. Mm, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And um, what are, like, if you just had to kind of fire them off, what are like your top three tips for someone to monetize their Python programming skills? Ooh, I don't know if I've got, I think to monetize uh, Python programming skills, I think um, the, to my mind, the, there are a couple of, of, of areas where that, that would probably be, um, that are probably going to be good ways to do that. Um, one of them, I suppose, is if Python is part of, of um, sort of a full stack set of skills, you know, JavaScript, you know, a couple of the front end frameworks, you can do some Python on the back end and whatever, that, that's certainly something that is always going to be in demand. Um, uh, Python is not the dominant platform for web applications, so it's not a huge slam dunk, but it will always, there will always be people that, that can do that uh, for APIs, say. Mm -hmm. uh, if you know databases and, and Flask uh, or something like Flask, then you can probably find work doing API work. But I think that the area that will have the most growth is, um, and I, I may have alluded to it before, is data engineering. This whole creating pipelines and cleaning data because I've worked with data scientists. They don't like to do that productionizing stuff in general. Uh, and somebody's got to. So, um, yeah. and the more that we have, you know, 
as we become increasingly addicted to data science, the more we're going to need those people. So uh, I, it's something that isn't as glamorous, but it is, I think, going to be a very reliable thing. Yeah. So you're saying they just, the data scientists, they just want a menu to order from. They don't want to, they don't want to <laughs> deal with those. <laughs> data scientists have a different set of skills. So, you know, I think you could, you know, they, they might legitimately say, look, I did not fill my brain with all of this math to just do a data pipeline. They didn't. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So thanks for sharing that. That gives color on kind of the ecosystem there. Uh, data science, um, just like a trend I've seen on this podcast. When I, when I ask questions about it, it's almost like it's, it's too vast of a, of a thing to really talk about because it's like, well, you're talking about the guy writing um, the, the algorithms or doing the feature engineering or the whole like data, like uh, programming the data pipelines and cleaning up the data. It's like, uh, may, maybe it's safe to say like, we're still learning what that ecosystem is about. And so uh, it's, and it's, it's a moving target. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. And um, for, what tools do you recommend as uh, some of like the first tools that a beginner should pick up? Uh, I, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I've been using, like, I, I still... I still use one flavor or another of Emacs a lot. And I'd, so that puts me in a very tiny minority. And I'm not sure I would wish Emacs on anybody if you're not already there. Um, but um, I, think, I think for somebody starting out, uh, it's probably uh, good to just get a good editor and, and there are tons of them out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, some of them maybe have, you know, uh, a, a few things built in, um, but uh, a good editor that uh, can help. I mean, for, for absolute beginners, uh, the Mew editor is kind of nice, you know, and then there are all sorts of things. But in general, I would say, um, not one of the big full-fledged IDEs for a beginner. There's too much other stuff to worry about other than coding. So, mm. so that, I mean, of course, try to stay up to date with, with the Python version. Uh, I think, you know, we're, we're finally past the whole, should I start with two or three issue? Thank heavens. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to do three, maybe you don't need to do, like, you know, the absolute latest version, but try to be pretty darn close. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's sort of um, to do that. Uh, Jupyter notebooks are really kind of cool to use for a lot of experimenting. You know, I think it's, um, for an absolute beginner, the problem with Jupyter notebooks is the same thing as using IPython or using even a Python shell. And that is with the REPL loop, Python lets you do a lot of things and that's cool. But for a beginner, it's really hard to keep track of the state of things. You may have actually played with that variable and changed it like 20 minutes ago while you're doing something else. And then now you're experimenting and you can't figure out why it's not what you thought it was. Things like mm -hmm. that. So um, those are all things that I would say are kind of uh, best used maybe with a little 
um, I don't want to say supervision, but at least with some expert who can bail you out or something like that. But uh, I do really like Jupyter Notebook for teaching and things like yeah. that. Are, are you a fan of the Google Colab environments as like a quick way to just get up and running or? Um, I haven't used them much. Uh, I've, I've only sort of spun them up when occasionally I might be, um, you know, teaching or traveling and it's like, well, just in case the yeah. worst happens, I want to have some place where I can go and get this. I've used it for that, but otherwise it looks like a slick interface, but I haven't, I haven't done much with it. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, how much room is there for C Python to grow in the parallel processing department? That is of course the big question that we're all asking. Um, I think uh, I have said for a few years now that I'm certain that we will figure this out and I'm still certain we'll figure it out. I'm not certain of when uh, is the problem because the, um, the gill and the whole problem of having concurrent, really having true concurrency, true parallel program processing uh, has been with us for a while. Um, and um, I, I haven't followed it closely, but what I have followed lately, I, I am hopeful that um, the approach using sub-interpreters and things like that will actually get us there. I think that um, we will get there, and um, I would hope it's within the next, I don't know, three to five years something like that, that we can have, have something that is, is convincingly uh, parallel rather than some of the issues that we have now. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe, because I know you uh, mentioned this in the pre-interview about the benefits of a more rapid and regular release cycle for CPython, so maybe that will assist or, yeah. What I, are I, I hope so. I mean, I think that it was a good idea to, to do that. Uh, I think that just from following the mailing lists and, and just knowing some of the developers, I think that they're still working out what, what this cycle really means, um, you know, getting into that rhythm. But I think once that happens, it may actually make the transition to some new features work a little bit better. Mm -hmm. uh, in the past, uh, if you were only releasing every 18 months and you wanted to have something deprecated for maybe three releases before you got rid of it and moved on to something else, then, you know, we're talking four and a half years before you can start thinking about uh, a feature. So, mm. you know, and, and I think that, you know, while while it's unlikely we'll ever have a change like the two to three change, getting through the, the parallel processing, getting around the gill, will probably at some point take at least a change that isn't totally backward compatible. Yeah, so. fair enough. And uh, I, I did want to pry a little bit on the Jupyter Notebook side uh, before we left that thread. And I was curious, what do you see for the future of innovation with that? Is it just with the, with the kind of disclosing the state of variables or is there other, other things yeah, you're kind I, of I excited don't, about? I don't, 
I don't know that, you know, the, the state issue is something that by, you know, the design will, will really, I don't know that that would ever change the whole fact that you work in cells. And if you wanted to have consistent state, you just put everything into one super giant cell and you're fine. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, but I mean, I think they've done a lot with making it easier to share them and share them live or share them in ways that they can be live. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I use Jupyter Notebook to present when I give a, a technical talk and I want to have code that runs live. I, I'm one of those foolhardy sorts, or actually it's not foolhardy anymore. I just don't, I just don't care if it goes wrong. So I will do live coding. <laughs> uh, and um, they, you know, there are areas where they would develop there. So it's just, you know, in terms of becoming a, a much more usable tool that way, version control, something else that, you know, is, is still kind of in its infancy for Jupyter Notebooks. Um, they do have a plugin that will do black to auto format your code, though, for each cell. And I use that. I like that. But. Huh. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, one thing, I think it's called the spider project or spider yes, three or something yes. like mm -hmm. they kind spider. of, they kind of have a snazzy setup where you can run in cells, but then you can see like this, you can see the snapshot of the, and you can like drill into the data frames and it's oh, kind that's of, that's right. They do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they have a, but I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely not like the first, like if that was the first right. thing, I mean, that'd yeah, be no, insane. nobody would know what that, that, that was even for. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And black, that's, that's a cool uh, topic. I, I think you pronounce his name. Uh, uh, Wukash yes. is the guy that created that. I actually, I just finished doing a podcast with him and uh, just another amazing human that these podcasts, Absolutely. it's the perfect excuse to get on an amazing humans calendar. So thank you for, you, uh, you know, opening up your calendar there. But uh, I wanted to ask, what does um, reintegration and recovery of the global Python community look like and wake of this virus <laughs> this thing? thing? Yeah. Well, so I think we're still kind of seeing the, the process unfolding of, of, all of the strain that's put on communities everywhere. You know, as we mentioned earlier, we can't get together face to face. Um, and um, it's, it's not clear how long this is gonna go on. Uh, and you know, as, as I alluded to earlier too, it's not clear what the fallout is going to be in terms of people's jobs and, and, and income and things like that. So all of those things will tend to drive us apart uh, one way or another. I mean, um, I, and yeah, so what does that reintegration and recovery look like? I, I think it starts with, with all of us doing what we can to, um, to keep in touch and keep sort of the connections going maybe virtually um, mm -hmm. as we move forward. So I think that's certainly going to be a key. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of looking at it from the point of view too of the Python Software Foundation because we give, uh, we have in the past given, you know, 
over 300,000 annually to various events around the world, in-person events. So um, the PSF is, you know, at, is still working out the details for this year's conference. Um, and, you know, in the event that it does not go forward, um, that's going to be a huge loss in income. And basically that's the money we would be giving to communities, but no. the communities aren't going to be having the same events for a while. How do we get all of that back? Yeah. Um, so, um, hmm. wow. It's, it's not something where I can tell you what that looks like. I know I, when, you know, in, in response to your question of what goals do I have, I want to be around to help it and to see it happen, but I'm not sure uh, where all of that goes. Yeah. Two years out, whatever it might be. Hmm. Wow. I mean, I guess for the opportunistic folks, it might be a way to kind of like, we have a great, you can look at it two ways, I guess. This is like a terrible thing. Uh, that's going to just hit the, the community hard, or it's an opportunity to innovate and the people with these, you know, the, the, the ideators, Absolutely. maybe there's something um, that good that will come from that. Well, so I know that um, I, I saw a tweet a few days back about, so how is it that no, that these tech conferences can't seem to do something online? Uh, and of course, you know, I, I think one answer is, well, we don't want to do things online. We actually do, believe it or not, like to see each other. Yeah. But uh, certainly EuroPython, they have been kicking around ideas madly uh, on, you know, in, in their groups for uh, how they can do a virtual uh, conference. Mm. And I think there will be a lot of innovation around what a virtual conference looks like. How can we do something that is more like a hallway track and less like an IRC channel, you know? Uh, yeah. so how do you do that online? What are you going to do? Um, and, as, and, and certainly, you know, I think a lot of, of, of the conferences coming up in the next few months are thinking about that. And um, as we go through this, I think there will be more. Um, maybe we will even get an interesting online platform out of it. Who knows? Yeah. The basic tools for sharing video, audio, and text are all kind of there. Maybe somebody can combine them in an interesting way we haven't thought of. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to seeing how uh, that, that, that whole thing transpires. So um, I know, uh, well, from the pre-interview, you had mentioned that uh, you were the, you kind of facilitated the first poster sessions for PyCon. And I was wondering, what is the biggest takeaway you had on how to create and organize an event after seeing that success? I mean, I, I've, done, I've done a number of events at PyCon and, and, and other, other things over the years since then. And um, the, there are a few things I learned. So you want to start reasonably small. So you don't want to expect that you have to have a ton of stuff. Um, it's good to have some room to grow, but you want to start reasonably small. And then in my experience, um, one thing that is the key for getting something going, and 
you know, we talk about sustainability and volunteer burnout and all of that. So I wish this wasn't true, but in my experience, the thing that makes uh, a, a new event go is having somebody who is willing to make it happen almost no matter what. You've got to have somebody buy in absolutely for the first year or two, because the first year you do it, you will feel many times like nobody else in the world cares. Uh, and it's, you know, so I, I have in various events over the years, sort of told myself, okay, look, if it's me and two other people, we're still doing this thing. Uh, and usually it has been much more than always it's been much more than that but it's you, you need to have somebody who's willing to kind of write out that initial stage so that other people can see what it is and then buy in and you, you get other people involved but it's just in my experience it's it's not realistic to expect you're going to have this nicely developed fully formed team from the beginning it takes a while for that to happen hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's some awesome insight there. And uh, last question on the community piece here. I was curious, what drives your passion for Python community work? Um, I think um, what it really comes down to is that um, Over the years, um, the Python community for me has always been um, a, a source of support. There have always been friends and people that uh, have been, uh, again, it's quite often it's from a distance, but sometimes it's been in, in person at various events, but there's always been uh, a support there so, you know, I wouldn't have the career that I have now in any number of ways if it weren't for, for that community. Um, and um, I think it's that support, that acceptance as, you know, um, people go through things in their lives and it's nice to have some place where you can go back to and still good, uh, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. And so I then, Basically, what drives me is I really want other people to have that and feel the same way. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, the altruism is pretty cool there. So, uh, I know what, uh, your goal, you had some goals that you had mentioned in the pre-interview, one of which uh, was to start producing potentially some video content, uh, teaching Python topics. And I was wondering if there was any particular topics that you were looking forward to uh, uh, well, doing there. I think for me, um, it sort of goes back to, to the principles we were talking about for the quick Python book and things like that. Um, I have seen over the years, um, a lot of people come into the Python community, come into Python, and you know, I've seen a lot of sort of community-based efforts to teach Python and things like that. And I, having been a teacher for years, all of that, I really like to have people form correct mental models of how things work. And honestly, quite often, people don't form those models. Um, even things relatively simple, uh, relatively basic, like, you know, iteration, even in some cases, just like how variables work and what they are. There are people that have, and 
usually they're fine. And then there's one thing that they do where, what? You can't do that uh, because they didn't understand how it works. So really what I'm interested in doing right now, and I'm, uh, I'm not quite sure if this will be something more formal or something that I produce informally. Uh, that's still kind of in negotiation, but I'm interested in doing some things where I just sort of talk through that with some, some simple examples where you can sort of take things apart and see how they work and then build up a, so once you see all of this and how it works, you will never be fooled in this range of situations again. That, that yeah. would be my goal. Okay, cool. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't sound like just another like YouTube channel tutorial thing or something like that. It's, it's definitely got some uh, uniqueness in there. So I look forward. I, I would to, hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, would you ever consider doing, uh, topics on beware or is that too kind of like new right now? I mean, it's something that I haven't really looked at much myself. I mean, I think, um, I think they're getting close to having a, a stack ready where you could do an app or something. In that case, I might. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, um, I probably wouldn't be able to resist at least giving it a try. <laughs> uh, over the years, uh, well, my test for these things is can I write a little, uh, like, say, oh, you know, 15 by 15 version of Conway's Game of Life. Can I do that in a reasonable amount of time and have it actually work? And there are a whole lot of places where you can't, you know, it's just, no, it doesn't work. Uh, huh. So something like that. Hmm. Excellent. And uh, there was something else that you mentioned in the, the pre-interview that I was a little curious about. Uh, what insight do you have on the risks of reinventing yourself and possibly a more optimal way of doing it? Well, um, I think that um, as far as reinventing oneself, um, I guess I can claim to have done it in a number of, a number of times and in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was a Latin teacher who became the director of technology. Uh, I was a school technology director who became uh, the uh, tech director of a startup. Um, you know, I was um, a person who transitioned gender. Um, so all of those were at the time in their own ways, pretty frightening, scary risks. And hmm. all of those turned out to lead to something that I feel was a much, much better situation than before. So I'm not sure that I have any secret for how to do it. Uh, and I certainly don't, don't want to minimize the scariness of it. Ah, oh, no, it's no problem. Just jump. Uh, but <laughs> it's, yeah. um, the, the rewards to be gained, I think, are such that you know, I really hate to see people who are maybe in uh, a job that they really don't care very much about because it's like, well, what I really want to do is this thing, but I'm over here doing this other thing, and, I, and they, they don't, they don't want to dare take that leap. Um, I, I would hope that, that more people would actually consider that. I mean, 
weigh the risks, try to minimize the risks, but then uh, after all of that, if it still seems like something you want to do, then yes, jump. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, so regarding some war stories, I wanted to uh, pick your brain on this. Um, what were your biggest takeaways on how to not build projects after your <laughs> C++ student scheduling system? Yes, yes, yes. So in, um, in, in, the, in the mid 90s, I was, as I say, I was, I was programming in C and I, I thought I knew a certain amount about C. And of course that was really when um, object orientation and, and C++ was, was the thing all the cool kids were doing. And so I, I, I read about that. I read the books and I was, was taken by it as was everybody, you know, at the time. And so we needed to do um, a school, you know, a scheduling system for the students then. And so I was, I was going to write it in C++. And this was, um, this was probably the biggest disaster of any project I've ever done in that I spent months doing this thing. And I had, I had abstractions, I had inheritance, I had, you know, uh, polymorphism, um, composition, you name it. I, I was, I was doing all of the oop stuff. And um, it is, of course, a hard problem to, to solve if you've got, say, even uh, let's say even a hundred students and, and 30 teachers and they all need to have six or seven periods a day. Uh, but this teacher can't be here then because they have to go someplace else. And, uh, but this student needs these three things and they, they can only be offered all at the, you know, it's an impossible problem, but I, that didn't stop me, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in fact, that wasn't really what brought down the project. It was instead um, a lot of things that, that I think maybe a lot of us learned in the 90s. So um, while there were vision control systems, they were hard to use and, and not terribly helpful. And that didn't help, but that certainly wasn't a, one of the big problems. But instead, it was just the, the ability to make things more and more complex got the best of me because hmm. given the ability to make things more and more complex, that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think I even had some recursive things to try and walk through all possible schedules for a student and stuff like that. And I think the other thing too I did was I, I thought I, I tried to do too much initially and add too many uh, features and oh, I'm going to take into account this as well. So all of those things meant that I spent months on something that wasn't reliable. Mm -hmm. And I, for the life of me, could not make it reliable. Uh, it was too complex. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't properly modulized, all of that. So uh, these days in my teams, when, when people start to suggest, well, maybe we should just make a class to model this whole thing, we put the brakes on right away. And they, they, they have no idea, I suppose, why I'm sort of, no, let, let's, let's stop here uh, and not make this any harder than we have to. So yeah, that, that was kind hmm. of my, my that, that is my horror story, I think, <laughs> of, of that. Um, so yeah, I, I now tell people, it's actually, I, I do some, some teaching, and uh, one time when I was teaching, I asked people why they were taking this intermediate Python class. They said, well, because 
I'm already using Python in my job and it's going great, but to be better at Python, I need to use more classes. I'm no, no, wait a second. No, 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 no. That, that's not, that's not what you need to do. So yeah, it's just a temptation that people have. Yeah. And that's without you having that experience, you, uh, you, you know, you can, well, actually now you can just properly guide people in those scenarios with extreme confidence. And uh, that's invaluable. You know, that, that is, experience was is, invaluable, yes. it sounds like. So awesome. And uh, also, I was curious if there was any other type of like, uh, working in the trenches type stories that come to mind that really stand out for you in defining you as the programmer that you are today. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I suppose um, when when I was working with one of the startups, actually, it was the first startup I was with. Um, we had to basically match up um, a uh, a web based software as a service type um, ERP system to manage our inventory and sales and all of that with a, 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 an, a legacy mainframe backend that, you know, the parent company was using. That was fine. But then when we started doing automated orders, um, because originally when we started that company, they didn't have that system set up before I was hired. So they would order, make the order, the, um, web-based system would generate an email which would send it to the home office and they would rekey the order and it was a nightmare. Uh, and it, they knew it was just temporary, but then when, you know, when I got there, my job was to make it work. So um, you know, we, we hired an integrator to make whatever and do that. And um, basically we discovered that we would have to change the records for like 200,000 items to be instead of being whatever it was, drop ship, they were going to be direct ship or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then we discovered that it would take um, about a week for that job to process. Maybe if we were lucky, four days. So we mm -hmm. were a new company and we were faced with having to turn off the website because you can't be kind of partly one and partly the other. So half of the order goes here, half of the order goes there. It's not mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, there was a lot of angst, uh, in our leadership team meetings as we were discussing what were we going to do about that. And then the morning that we were supposed to cut over, uh, I had this eureka moment, had nothing to do with Python. In fact, it was, it was JavaScript that I had to write this in that inside this web-based ERP thing they had a hook for when an order was completed and I could just write a little JavaScript to change the type right then as it was sending the order. So I sort of went and tried it and it worked and I sort of told the leadership team in our meeting and they're like, what? Uh, and in <laughs> fact, it was this, it was like a 40 line script or something like that that actually saved us being down for four days. And in fact, we just had a seamless cut over us Six o'clock, we cut over, discovered one minor problem unrelated to that. They fixed that. Seven o'clock, we went home. Uh, so, wow. yeah, it was it's just sort of the power of stepping back and thinking about the problem from a different angle um, mm. was, was something I think I got from that, plus a darn good story in mind. 
Yeah. Oh man, that's, that's so cool. And for those of us that love to, uh, well, I don't know if love is the right word, but I, I see myself just gravitating towards complexity. Like if I'm not vigilant about it, oh, you can count on me. I will complicate mm-hmm. the crap out of that thing, whatever it might be. And so kind of what you're sharing there is like, it's, um, yeah, there's, there's probably always a better way than the complex yes. way. And <laughs> anyway, thanks yeah, for sharing that. That's cool. Um, what is the, the best part about leading a group of programmers for Dick Blick art materials? Well, um, I like to draw and paint, so I guess I could say the employee discount. <laughs> um, but, um, and of course, I do like the fact that we're a company that sells something that allows people to be creative and create cool stuff. So that, that, is, that is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the thing I like about leading teams in general is that you can kind of, um, you kind of get to see how a lot of people work and, um, you know, at, at the position I'm in now, certainly to kind of um, guide and, and sort of help shape and, and then help these teams come together and um, kind of create um, a, um, a good atmosphere for people to work in and things like that. So all, all of those are the things that, that I kind of enjoy. Okay, excellent. And I was, uh, I was curious, since you're kind of, you're more in the leadership role there, what type of attributes do you look for in your, in the people that you uh, have on your team? Or maybe like another way to ask that is like, what sort of attributes do you see being more successful on that, in that environment? Um, so One thing that I think about in, in, in building a team is that I want to have, um, I want to have diversity in, in whatever senses I can get. So I do not want to have people that all think the same way. Uh, and, and also all people who all act the same way or look the same way or any of that stuff. Um, so um, I think that if you think about it in terms of there isn't a type I want. I want to create a collection of people that have different complementary qualities that go together. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I'm, I'm building a team. I'm not hiring five of X. That, that's not what I want. I want uh, you know, a collection of different things that work well together. It's, it's a little bit harder to articulate, but... That, that's something that I think about. Um, and, you know, to get more directly to the question you're, you're asking, I am not super concerned with technical knowledge. Hmm. Um, obviously, knowing the subject is going to be necessary because we can't teach somebody everything, so that's fine. But knowing a particular detail or not, unless it's something really basic, it's not something that's going to concern me. It's like, you know, it, it's not, not the case where um, I will or nor do I actually let any, anybody on my team as we interview, I don't let them do it either. Uh, it's trying to trip people up on a specific, oh, you don't know this thing or whatever. 
It's like, no, we, we, we don't do that. Um, because those kinds of details, pretty much anybody who knows, basically knows their stuff is reasonably intelligent. They're going to be able to learn. That's, that's mm -hmm. not what I'm after. I'm more after, um, if they do have a, a, at least a decent basic knowledge, then I'm after, um, how, Basically, I'm interested in how they, they approach things. So I like to see people who aren't afraid of tackling a problem. And that can be all sorts of different problems and it can be in all sorts of different ways. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the people I hired just recently, um, he actually did something on his resume that I think probably the experts would say, don't ever do this, but he, it, it interested me and that was he color coded all of the technologies and then he color coded the bits of his experience to match the technologies up above. It's like, Oh, this is, this is silly, but I, it's like, I like it. Uh, it's, it's something <laughs> different. It's creative thinking yeah. and it showed that he knew what he was saying. Um, it's interesting, you know, on the flip side, I've also hired people because they come from a scientific background where they're used to handling uh, just like enormous chunks of data. You know, physicists are used to thinking in terms of, uh, you know, huge data sets and stuff like that. They're not afraid of impossible problems. So, you know, I've, yeah. I've hired people with a physics background as well. So it's, it's those kinds of things. Unless I say, I like to have a mixture of that. I like to have both the type who has, you know, that more kind of scientific hard science thing as well as those that have more of a a creative approach to yeah that's that's awesome thanks for the insight uh i'm sure people are going to get a ton of value out of that so thank you let's see here so what are uh oh okay so what is the best piece of advice you've ever received <laughs> oh the best piece of advice I've ever received. You're off the hook after this one. Okay. Okay. Well, this, this is a tough one. I'm trying to think here. I mean, I think over the years, um, I have had people, um, particularly as I, as I was, as I was starting out and things like that, who, who were around to encourage me to, to try and, and just sort of, reach a little bit higher. So I, I think that's definitely something to, you know, to have people advise you to try harder. Um, I think the, the other thing, I guess, and I, I'm not sure if I could pin down who said it, although, you know, various people have said this over the years, but um, just if you think of um, the old movie Harvey uh, and about the guy who knows the invisible white rabbit. And, and in any case, uh, at one point he says, you know, I, I, I learned early on something like this. I learned early on that to get by in this world, you need to be either really smart or really kind. And I decided I wasn't smart enough. Uh, so I, I think that, that that's certainly the, the advice or the outlook that I, 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 I value the most is this notion of, of, of respect and kindness. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so in 2020, what is like the most important book that we should read? Uh, technical and non-technical, I guess. <laughs> oh, 
I don't know. Um, so, um, let's see. Um, important, well, that's a slippery subject. Non-technical, <laughs> the book that I'm reading right now mm -hmm. that, that I find really fascinating uh, is one by, um, by Franz DeWall called Mama's Last Hug. It's about the uh, chimpanzee who had known this researcher like 30, 40 years ago or whatever. As she's dying, he comes back and greets her. And it's, it went viral, you know, they hug and whatever. Uh, it's about animal emotion and animal cognition, the fact that animals in fact have, um, have more developed emotions and probably more developed cognition than we as, as humans have given them credit for. Hmm. Uh, you know, DeWall's, DeWall looks at it kind of as the whole thing. It's like, we're all animals, okay? It's not this human animal thing. We're just, we're just another species of animal uh, and we all have similar behaviors. But it, it's, it's just a fascinating look at um, at, at that whole subject. So that's what I'm reading right now. So I guess having a short attention span, that's the one I'll say is, is, is what I would recommend. Excellent. Uh, technical, um, probably I, I, I would have to, have to recommend, although I'm not sure it will be out this year, but um, my friend Luciano Hamano uh, is redoing Fluent Python. Okay. And, you know, that, that is one of those books that I mentioned where it's full of theoretical knowledge and you can barely read a page without having to follow all of these things because there's so much in it. Yeah. Um, but certainly somebody who has, uh, who has established and understands coding and or Python at a fairly decent level, um, then, yeah, you should get that book. I can't imagine anybody reading it in a, in a, in a sitting, but... Uh, dipping into it over months and years, yes, there would always be something good there. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, for top programming languages, what do you think we should keep on our radar? Um, well, JavaScript is not going away. Um, it, it, is, it is with us. Um, Java, I don't think is... I mean, it's clearly a dominant thing in the enterprise, but um, I think for most people who are really into Python, there's kind of a different ethos and, and a different interest. Uh, Java programmers, by and large, not all, by all means not all, but I think Java is being an enterprise language attracts people who code as a job. I think Python is more likely to attract people who code partly as a passion. Uh, so I think ultimately we will come out ahead there, but there's yeah. gonna be a lot of Java around forever. Don't get me wrong. Hmm. Of the up and coming languages, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I personally don't know if Go is going to be a huge deal. It's, it's, it's going to be successful, but I don't, I don't see it at this point, taking over the world. Um, I don't know about Rust. So many people talk about Rust that there must be something there, but I haven't had a chance to actually go look at, at Rust and, and, and form an opinion on that. But, mm -hmm. So those are, are clearly a couple of the ones that are, that are, that are up and coming and probably, 
probably will stay on the radar for a while. Cool. Um, yeah. Awesome. And uh, so all things considered, we hit a ton of topics today. Uh, is there some uh, kind of message that you want people to leave the interview with? Um, I mean, I think, um, I think I would say one, 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 one more time that, um, that don't, don't neglect the soft skills. Soft skills are technical skills, uh, I guess is what I would say. Awesome. And uh, for the call to action here, here is your platform. So where can they connect with you? What must they do immediately after listening to this interview? That sort of thing. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know that I would. Um, they, they certainly are invited to go check out the quick Python book at, at, at manning.com. Um, but um, they're, Otherwise, uh, I can be found.